Chapter 19 of the Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865, by Leander Stilwell. Chapter 19. Expedition to North Missouri. Back in Tennessee once more. Murfreesboro, October and November, 1864. On October 14th, we left Chester on the steamer A. Jacobs and went to St. Louis, where we arrived on the 15th and marched out to Laclede Station, about six miles from St. Louis on the Pacific Railroad, where we found the balance of the regiment. There was a railroad bridge at this place over a small stream, and I suppose that during the scare of St. Louis it was deemed prudent to have a force here to guard the bridge. On October 19th the regiment left Laclede and went by rail on the North Missouri Railroad to Mexico in Audrain County, Missouri, about a 110 miles northwest of St. Louis. Here we reported to Colonel Samuel A. Holmes, Colonel of the 40th Missouri Infantry. We left Mexico October 21st and marched northward 25 miles to Paris, the county seat of Monroe County. There was a body of irregular Confederate cavalry, supposed to be about 500 strong, under the command of a Colonel McDaniel, operating in this region, and carrying on a sort of predatory and uncivilized warfare. We learned that it was our business up here to bring this gang to battle and destroy them if possible, or failing in that to drive them out of the country. Our force consisted of about 700 infantry, the 40th Missouri and the 61st Illinois, and a detachment of about 300 cavalry, whose state and regimental number I have forgotten. Our cavalry caught up with the Confederates at Paris and had a little skirmish with them, but before the infantry could get on the ground, the enemy lit out as fast as their horses could carry them. We lay that night at Paris, and the next day, the 22nd, marched to the little town of Florida, where we bivouacked for the night. It was a small place, situated on a high, timbered ridge between the main Salt River and one of its forks. With the exception that it was not a county seat, it was practically a counterpart of the little village of Springfield, Arkansas, herein before mentioned. It had only one street of any consequence, and all up and down this street in several places right in the middle thereof were grand, imposing native trees, such as oaks and hickories. But the place was now totally deserted and looked lonesome and desolate. I ascertained several years later that it was the birthplace of Samuel L. Clemens, the author, better known under his pen name Mark Twain. It is also an interesting circumstance that the first military operation conducted by General U.S. Grant was a movement in the summer of 1861 on this little village of Florida, with the intention and expectation of giving battle to a Confederate force in camp near the town. Grant's Memoirs, 1st edition, volume 1, pages 248 and following. The next day, the 23rd, we turned south and marched to the little town of Santa Fe, 
and the next day thereafter back to Paris, where we remained a day. On the 26th we went to Middle Grove, and on the following day again reached the railroad at Allen, some distance northwest of Mexico, where we first started out. It would seem that this little station of Allen has, since the war, disappeared from the map, at least I can't find it. On this expedition the infantry never caught a glimpse of an armed Confederate, but the object of the movement was accomplished. We kept after our foes so persistently that they left that locality, crossed the Missouri River, joined Price's army, and with it left the state. At this time the section of country over which we marched in the pursuit of McDaniel's command is now all gridironed with railroads, but in 1864 there were only two, the North Missouri running northwest from St. Louis to Macon, and the Hannibal and St. Joe connecting those two places and extending from the Mississippi River on the east to the Missouri River on the west. We always remembered this scout up in North Missouri with feelings of comfort and satisfaction. Compared with some of our Arkansas marches, it was just a pleasure excursion. The roads were in good condition and the weather was fine, ideal Indian summer days. And in the fruit and vegetable line, we lived high. The country through which we passed abounded in the finest of winter apples, little Romanites and genetines being the chief varieties. The farmers had gathered and piled them in the orchards in conical heaps and covered them with straw and earth sufficient to keep them from freezing. We soon learned what those little earth mounds signified, and, as a matter of course, confiscated the apples instanter. And the country was full of potatoes, cabbages, and turnips, on which we foraged with great liberality. If any apology for this conduct should be thought proper, it may be said that many of the farms were at this time abandoned, the owners having fled to the garrison towns to escape the Confederate raiders. Further, if we hadn't taken this stuff, our adversaries would, if by chance they happened again to infest that locality. Anyhow, a hungry soldier is not troubled in such matters by nice ethical distinctions. We remained at Allen on the 28th and until the evening of the following day, when we left there on the cars for St. Louis. But sometime near midnight the train stopped at Montgomery City, about midway between Allen and St. Louis, we were roused up and ordered to get off and form in line, which we did. Our officers then proceeded to give us careful instructions to the effect that a band of Confederate cavalry was believed to be at Danville, out in the country a few miles south, and that we were going there to surprise and capture this party if possible. We were strictly enjoined to refrain from talking and singing, and to remain absolutely silent in ranks. We then fell into column and marched for Danville, where we arrived an hour or so before dawn. But our birds, if there when we started from Montgomery, had flown. There were no Confederates there. A party of guerrillas had been in the town about two weeks before, who had murdered five or six unarmed citizens, including one little boy about eight or ten years old. And it was believed, when we started to march out here, that this gang, or some of them, had returned. The party that had previously raided Danville were under the command of one Bill Anderson, a bloodthirsty desperado with no more humanity about him than an Apache Indian. He was finally killed in battle with some Union troops about the last of October, 1864. 
When killed, there was found on his person a commission as colonel in the Confederate Army, signed by Jefferson Davis, and the brow band of his horse's bridle was decorated with two human scalps. See The Civil War on the Border by Wiley Britton, Volume 2, page 546. He was of that class of men of which Quantrell and the James and the Younger Brothers were fitting types, and who were a disgrace to mankind. Sometime during the day, October 30th, we marched back to Montgomery City, got on the cars, and again started for St. Louis, where we arrived the next day and marched out to Old Benton Barracks, where we took up our quarters for the time being. So we were once more tenting on the old campground, after an absence of nearly three years. But the place did not look as it did before. It seemed old and dilapidated, and there were only a few troops there, as compared with the active, stirring conditions that obtained there in February and March 1862, it now looked indescribably dejected and forlorn. But our stay here this time was short. We left on November 5th, marched into St. Louis and down to the wharf, where we embarked on the steamer David Tatum and started up the Mississippi. We were puzzled for a while as to what this meant, but soon found out. We were told that the regiment was being sent home to vote at the ensuing presidential election, which would occur on November 8th, that we would take the cars at Alton and go to Springfield, and from there to our respective homes. We surely were glad that we were going to be granted this favor. The most of the states had enacted laws authorizing their soldiers to vote in the field, but the Illinois legislature since 1862 had been democratic in politics, and that party at that time in our state was not favorably disposed to such a measure. Consequently, the legislature in office had failed to pass any law authorizing their soldier constituents to vote when away from home. We arrived at Alton about nine o'clock on the evening of the 5th and found a train waiting for us, boxcars, which we at once climbed on. We had just got our guns and other things stowed away in corners and were proceeding to make ourselves comfortable for a night ride to Springfield when Lieutenant Wallace came down from the officer's caboose and stopped at the Company D car. Boys, he called out, get out and fall in line here by the track. The order to go to Springfield has been countermanded by telegraphic dispatch and we are ordered back to St. Louis. What? What's that? we exclaimed in astonishment. It's so, said Wallace, in a tone of deep regret. Get out. Well, don't that beat hell, was the next remark of about a dozen of us. But orders are orders, and there was nothing to do but obey. The curses of the disappointed soldiers in thus having this cup of satisfaction dashed from their lips were not loud but deep. But we all swung down from the cars, fell in, and marched back to and on board the David Tatum, and were back at the wharf in St. Louis the next morning. We stacked arms on the levee, and the next morning, November 7th, left St. Louis on the steamer Jenny Brown, headed downstream. So here we were again on the broad Mississippi, duplicating our beginning of March 1862, and once more bound for Dixie's land. By this time we had become philosophical and indifferent in regard to the ups and downs of our career. If we had been ordered some night to be ready the next morning to start to California or Maine, 
the order would have been treated with absolute composure, and after a few careless or sarcastic remarks, we would have turned over and been asleep again in about a minute. We had made up our minds that we were going to see the war through, and were determined in our conviction that we were going to win in the end. Election day, November 8th, was densely foggy, so much so that the captain of our steamboat thought it not prudent to proceed. So the boat tied up that day and night at the little town of Wittenberg on the Missouri shore. Mainly to pass away the time, the officers concluded to hold a mock regimental presidential election. The most of the line officers were Democrats and were supporting General McClellan for president in opposition to Mr. Lincoln and they were quite confident that a majority of the regiment favored McClellan, so they were much in favor of holding an election. An election board was chosen, fairly divided between the supporters of the respective candidates, and the voting began. As our votes wouldn't count in the official result, every soldier, regardless of age, was allowed to vote. But at this time I was a sure enough legal voter, having attained my 21st year on the 16th of the preceding September. You may rest assured that I voted for Uncle Abe, good and strong. When the votes were counted, to the astonishment of nearly all of us, Mr. Lincoln was found to have 16 majority. As the regiment was largely Democratic when it left Illinois in February 1862, this vote showed that the political opinions of the rank and file had, in the meantime, undergone a decided change. We left Wittenberg on the forenoon of the ninth, but owing to the foggy conditions, our progress was very slow. We reached Cairo on the 10th, and from there proceeded up the Ohio, and on the 11th arrived at Paducah, Kentucky, where we debarked and went into camp. We remained there nearly two weeks, doing nothing but the ordinary routine of camp duty, so life here was quite uneventful. Paducah was then an old, sleepy, dilapidated, and badly decayed river town, with a population at the outbreak of the war of about 4,000. After our brief stay here terminated, I never was at the place again until in October 1914, when I was there for about a day, which was devoted to rambling about the town. The flight of fifty years had made great changes in Paducah. It now had a population of about twenty-five thousand, four different lines of railroad, street cars, electric lights, and a full supply generally of all the other so-called modern conveniences. On this occasion I hunted faithfully and persistently for the old campground of the regiment in 1864, but couldn't find it, nor even any locality that looked like it. On the evening of November 24th, the regiment left Paducah on the little sternwheel steamboat Rosa D., which steamed up the Ohio River as far as the mouth of the Cumberland, there turned to the right and proceeded to ascend that stream. That move told the story of our probable destination, and indicated to us that we were doubtless on our way to Nashville to join the army of General Thomas. There was another boat that left Paducah the same time we did, the Masonic Gem a sternwheeler about the same size of our boat. It was also transporting a regiment of soldiers, whose state and regimental number I do not now remember. The captains of the two boats, for some reason or other, lashed their vessels together side by side, and in this manner we made the greater part of the trip. 
In going up the Cumberland, the regiment lost two men by drowning, Henry Minor of Company D and Perry Crotchet of Company G. There was something of a mystery in regard to the death of Minor. He was last seen about nine o'clock one evening on the lower deck of the boat, close to where the two boats were lashed together. It was supposed that in some manner he missed his footing and fell between the boats, and was at once sucked under by the current and drowned. His cap was discovered the next morning on the deck near the place where he was last observed, but no other vestige of him was ever found. The other soldier, Perry Crotchet, stumbled and fell into the river in the daytime from the after part of the hurricane deck of the boat. He was perhaps stunned by the fall, for he just sank like a stone. The boat stopped, and the skiff was at once lowered and manned and rowed out to the spot where he disappeared, and which lingered around there a short time in the hope that he might come to the surface. His little old wool hat was floating around on the tops of the waves, but poor Perry was never seen again. There was nothing that could be done, so the skiff came back to the boat, was hoisted aboard, the bells rang the signal, go ahead, and we went on. Miner and Crotchet were both young men about my own age, and had been good and brave soldiers. Somehow it looked hard and cruel that after three years' faithful service they were fated at last to lose their lives by drowning in the cold waters of the Cumberland, and be devoured by catfish and snapping turtles. But such are among the chances in the life of a soldier. On our way up the Cumberland we passed the historic Fort Donelson, where General Grant in February 1862 gained his first great victory. There was at that time desperate and bloody fighting at and near the gray earthen walls of the old fort. Now there was only a small garrison of Union troops here, and with that exception the place looked about as quiet and peaceful as some obscure country graveyard. We arrived at Nashville after dark on the evening of the 27th, remained on the boat that night, debarked the next morning, and in the course of that day, the 28th, took the cars on what was then known as the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad, and went to Murfreesboro, about 30 miles southeast of Nashville. Here we went into camp inside of Fortress Rosecrans, a strong and extensive earthwork built under the direction of General Rosecrans soon after the Battle of Murfreesboro in January 1863. End of chapter 19